Hey there, it's Kelly from Zinimi. Before we get started on today's episode, I want to invite you to one of our greatest trainings ever. It's how to build and grow a profitable solo or group practice sustainably. All you got to do is check it out at zinimi.com slash podcast. All right, on to our episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to starting a counseling practice where we invite amazing therapists from all over the country and all over the world to share their individual and unique stories of starting their own therapy private practices. There is so much joy in my heart (laughs) that I get to have this conversation with Haley Myers today, sharing her private practice journey um, and story if you are listening and wondering like what might life look like and how do I get through the ups and downs of life and private practice simultaneously, this is the podcast to listen to. So without <laughs> further ado, welcome Haley. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. And me too. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to share with our listeners um, just like a brief overview of where your practice is at? who you serve and what it looks like today. And then we'll kind of backtrack backtrack from there as to how you got to where you are. Okay. Yeah, sure. I'm a licensed clinical social worker in Sacramento and I own a practice called Restoring Light Counseling Center. I work with uh, teens and kids who are experiencing anxiety or depression. And then I do some parent work in there too um, with the parents. So right now I am sitting pretty full for me at about 12 clients. Um, And then with doing the parent work that sets me at where I really want to be. I have a lot of time to be flexible and spend time with my son, which was really important to me. Um, Things are feeling pretty balanced. I'm working on fine tuning a lot of, um, of things in my practice, but overall and able to pay myself to pay my bills and to work on some goals. So feeling pretty good about it. That's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. And I think too, like, I want to give a little like, like shout out to that, like what full for me is Mm -hmm. right. And I think a lot of times because we come from agencies and we come from nonprofits and or from county positions where full might look like a caseload of 60, or it might look like 30 sessions a week. We don't really think about what it means to be a business owner. And that even at full, right, that doesn't mean you're working 12 hours a week. It's okay, that's 12 cases. And I'm doing phone calls with parents, or I'm doing reschedules. Um, I still have to figure out ABCD, I leave room for I'm sure at least a couple of times a month, there's some major things that blow up in families with kids with anxiety Mm -hmm. and depression, like all these different pieces, like to actually create something that's sustainable when you don't have, you know, a full-time receptionist or a whole team of case managers, it looks very different. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much more that goes into just one case than just the hour. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So In one minute or less, why did you decide to become a therapist or a social worker? Oh, wow. Okay. That's a big question. It is. <laughs> I, I had this dream since I was young. 
um, in it, I experienced some of my own traumas and issues in my family, like a lot of us have. Um, and I always wanted to be somebody who gave back and kind of repaid that kindness that was given to me and that kind of opportunity to reset and to change course. Cause I think my life could have gone very differently. <laughs> so, um, and I was always kind of that person for people. Um, I've learned to balance that better lately, but growing up, I was always the person that people came to and I, I felt like it came naturally to me. Mm-hmm. And um, so putting my life into something that um, was beneficial for others and also helped me feel like I was paying it forward. It was, it's always been a no brainer for me and it feels like what I was meant to do. That's awesome. So even knowing that from a young age, did you go straight through the process or was it like a winding road to actually get to, um, even like to graduate school and finish graduate school? Um, well, I did take like a semester off after high school because I, it just, um, I thought I knew what school I wanted to go to. I put all my eggs in that basket, but when I actually visited, I did not like it. So I took a little time to think about what I wanted. And then I did my undergrad. I then took another break for actually, I want to say three or four years before doing grad school. And I was working in a group home for teen girls. So I got a lot of really great experience and foundational work that I think helped me in my grad school experience. Um, And I worked all throughout grad school. I did a distance learning program through Chico State, which I'm so thankful it was available. Um, But it was three years and I worked the entire time. So it was a little bit of a journey, but we got it done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did you feel about that? Because I, I I worked full time and went to school full time, but it was in person. So I was kind of bouncing and jumping back and forth mm-hmm. um, from school to work. How did they do at Chico in terms of the distance learning program? So it was like a hybrid model where mostly online, but twice a semester, we would all come to the campus on a weekend. And mm-hmm. so people, the program was designed for more rural areas. I think I, I was in Sacramento, but I got kind of added in, thankfully. Um, but it's meant to reach those more rural areas of Northern California where people are um, undereducated really for their positions and working in these positions that should require a higher level of um, like a master's level, but they just didn't have the people. So great opportunity. So we would all come together on the weekends and then do our work throughout the semester. It was also year round. So summer was included in that, but Mm -hmm. they understood that most of us were still working full time. And so the load was, was spread out over the course of those three years. Okay. And how did you feel clinically um, in terms of the skills? Cause you came in with a lot of clinical skill um, to the program yeah. after three or four years of working in a group mm-hmm. home, what were the things that you felt like it added or the places where you felt like it, it really wasn't able to meet the need? I think there was a, there was a lot of great clinical teaching there. Um, even being online, I mean, we had, you know, classes we were supposed to attend it, like in person, but virtually, A lot of, um, you know, the forum board discussion posts and things like that. But I really think that it was 
was very helpful in learning, I think, a great understanding of more of the actual clinical stuff, because in the group homes and my experience, there was stuff I was absorbing and learning, but this put into play a lot more of the, the clinical aspects. But my undergrad was in clinical psychology, not social work. So I did oh. actually get a lot of that um, foundational understanding too. And then with the real world experience, it it all came together in that program. I really, I loved the program. I really didn't have anything, That's you know, like, oh, I wish they did this or that, but. No, I think it's beautiful. I think the biggest thing that I see over and over again is that people go into their grad school program thinking it's going to be the end all and be all. And mm. then they're really disappointed when really it is like, even though it's grad school, it's this like primer, it's very broad and it's yeah. often it's the it's the training you're getting outside of that, either in real life situations or in certifications or advanced training that usually is where you like get into like the juicier bits. Um, mm-hmm. And so I always say like the a the thing that works within your life and b the cheaper you can find the program <laughs> in terms of it being really affordable. So you're not yeah. like saddled down with student loans. Like those are the two pieces. Like if you can yeah. do that. And then you can invest your time and energy in other areas um, like you did, right? Even though, you know, working through that whole time and working at the group home, like I know what the hours look like (laughs) in most group homes. Like it's not like the traditional like, oh, I work 30 hours or whatever. Sometimes it gets really expanded there. So that space of, um, yeah, just having that exploration. Okay. So you got through in three years. Mm-hmm. you're already working from there. How long does it take you to get licensed? Um, let's see from there. I think, so I graduated in 2015 and I got licensed in, uh, 2019, right before I had my son, like I was eight months pregnant, taking that test. <laughs> I knew I, I just had to get it done before he came. Um, so what happened for me, though, is because I was in these community-based agencies, my hours, they racked up very quickly, but my weeks of supervision, I still had to, I was done with hours and I still needed 25 weeks of supervision. Wow. So it was kind of an interesting flip-flop. So it kind of took more time, I think, than originally I had hoped, but I think it was all necessary and important for my journey. but. Yeah. So it took me, you know, just under four years. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Blossom. And then from the point that you got licensed in 2019, how quickly Mm -hmm. were you like, yes, private practice is the thing. What, how, how long did it take for you to be ready to like go down that path? I opened originally in January of 2021. So under two years where I was like, okay, I need to be building something else, something of my own that that aligns more with me and what I want to bring to the world. Mm -hmm. So not too long, actually. Okay. And what would, what most surprised you that first time of building a practice? Uh, That people came. (laughs) 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 But I, I, what's going on? I know within a week or two of putting up my psychology today, I had the phone ringing and that people, something spoke to them and that they wanted to see me and that they wanted to pay me for it after it having taken place. It was like, 
oh my, maybe I really can do this and um, that I could provide something for people um, that's not orchestrated by somebody else. That's not an agency that people know and go to or are contracted to by the county. It, mm-hmm. it was my own thing. And it, it, I think it surprised me and gave me all the confidence. Like I needed so much confidence to keep going and move forward. And especially, I'm sure we'll get to this, but to come back and do it after some things like I knew because I had done it before from nothing that I could just, I could do it. And it gave me so much confidence. It's beautiful. And I think you're, this is a more common story I've found with people that are working with children and teens Mm -hmm. than I've seen with adults. Um, Mm -hmm. Often practices that are, that have children, teens get filled up very quickly and they tend to stay full. Um, so if you are someone who's listening and you have an adult-based practice or you're sitting there thinking like, why didn't mine get full? Like, <laughs> he's like, what am I doing wrong? Um, it may not be that you're do- you're not doing anything wrong. It's just a little bit different. And I think this sometimes also looks at this idea of knowing like where your niche is and, and how much desire there is in your area. And I know that in Sacramento mm-hmm. and throughout the country, um, there's a lot of need and desire for work with children and teens. And then the fact that you were able to not just be present and have something there, but to actually like share it in a heartfelt way where people are like, oh, yes, this is a person that I want. Like, yes, mm-hmm. and it made that so much easier. Yeah. So you got people started calling quickly. You started going and flowing. And then what happened? Well, I started going and flowing pretty well, started to think about at the time I was working in a school district. So it was that point where my caseload was getting to be pretty full. I think I had 15 clients by the, by summertime and people wanted to stay over summer. And I'm thinking, am I going to quit my job? That's very stable. And I was providing all the income for my family Um, I would need to really ramp it up or, or ramp it down and go back to my job. Um, And I, I had decided to go for it and then found out I was pregnant. So a little bit of panic set in with, well, I need my benefits. I need my maternity leave. So I had kind of panicked and started to taper it down and then we lost the baby. So it flipped it on its head again. Um, and I could talk about it now, but obviously at the time it was extremely devastating. We were so caught off guard, even though like we know it's a possibility, but you never think it'll happen to you. So, you know, it just kind of flip-flopped everything. And I, I just kind of panicked and retreated and I dropped everything. I walked away from it. I had, um, I had somebody refer out all of my patients and went back to my, my full-time job. So that's kind of where things took a little detour. Yeah. And even as you look back and think about what comes up for you now in this moment, what, what would you like to say to someone else who's been in that situation? Maybe is like listening who has, for whatever reason, a life or especially like a loss like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a really significant and really private loss, you know, in so many ways, like it's so, (laughs) it's just a private thing um, that it can feel 
my experience is it just feels so lonely and it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like something you can say like, oh, I had a loss in the family. You know, it's often so like kind of awkward to say like, no, I just Mm -hmm. don't have it. Like I just lost a child and like to go in and provide therapy for somebody else right now. Like it's just, it's just not where I'm at. Yeah. I think prior to the loss, I, I was that person that would have put aside and compartmentalized how I was feeling to serve others. Mm -hmm. And if anything, you know, dare I say good came from that. It was that, um, no, you deserve to grieve and have feelings and it, it's okay to disappoint people. It's okay to let things go and to truly take care of yourself and give yourself the time. And I, you know, I, I did my best with that at the time and felt pressure, of course, to return when school started again, but I ended up taking a leave of absence by December. I was so burnt out and hadn't really grieved and hadn't really given my time myself that space, even though I thought I was. And it wasn't until then that I truly gave myself time to rest and recover from this chronic burnout, but also this grief and acknowledging it for myself. I think one of the hardest things was, yeah, you, it is private. And and when I would get the courage to talk to somebody, they're very (laughs) well-meaning, but they'll say things like, oh, you know, so-and-so tried again and now they have a baby. And it's like, that's not the point. I still want to acknowledge what happened to us and the loss that we had and, and not by just having another one, which anybody who does that, that's great for them. But for me, that wasn't, that wasn't the point. And so it was really hard that even when I would speak out about it, it, it wasn't really understood. And so I did feel like retreating and setting things aside was the best option for me. Mm -hmm. And when I decided to reopen, it was for me now. Yes, of course, I'm helping other people. But this time, it was for me too. Mm. And I think that's made such a huge difference in how, how I look at my business now, how I implement everything, how I think about it, how people are coming to me, how I conceptualize cases, you know, I'm not just giving all myself away. Mm. Can you give me an example of what may seem to someone else like an, like a, I want to say like an odd example, but this example of how, how things have changed with your policies or procedures or how you do things differently based on you understanding yourself more, you putting yourself first, like what are some of the like tangible things that have shifted in the way that you do day-to-day practice based, you know, now? Yeah. One thing that really comes to mind is charging a cancellation fee. <laughs> mm. Oh my gosh. I. It still makes me, you know, a little uncomfortable, but for having essentially accountability for somebody who didn't follow a procedure or a policy I had in place and then reinforcing that, the first couple of times was like, it was so difficult, but I kept telling myself that this is my time. My time is valuable. Mm -hmm. And yes, I want to help them. But if this is the thing that makes them, you know, there's a barrier or they need to be somewhere else, then that's their choice. 
And it was really difficult to come to that conclusion. But I think that's one of the major differences is that there's some accountability for the parents of these kids who are bringing them in and, and respecting my time and policies as well. Well, I think it, and from a case perspective, right, you can't help this kid if they can't count on you. Mm-hmm. And that cancellation and re, or late cancellation, no show fee, that's a big part of the container when we're working with families, as uncomfortable as it is, as much as it can sometimes feel like, okay, I'm punishing this person, but it's really not. I'm I'm setting the, the foundation, right? That here's how this works. And this kid knows that this is what's going to happen. And if the parent is going to pull them from therapy because that foundation is set, you kind of rather it happen sooner than later, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it's almost unfair sometimes for these kids to have this, oh, I'm going to therapy once or twice a month or when my parent deems it appropriate because they're angry at me. <laughs> and now suddenly <laughs> I'm going to send them to therapy. But now they're like, you know, they're actually starting to dig into their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Then, so, oh, now therapy is not important. And, you know, I don't know if you see that dynamic at all with your families. Well, no, I don't because I, they don't, they don't do that because I, I have that policy in place and they know that that's what's going to happen. I, I really, I'm pretty lucky. I don't have a lot of no-shows or cancellations. If it happens, it's like, oh my God, we were so busy. I'm so sorry. I meant to call you. Mm-hmm. And oh, how can I repay you? I'm so sorry. I'm like, well, my policy is that I'm still going to charge you. So it's okay. I'll see you guys next week. And oh, okay. All right. See you next week. <laughs> okay. Can bye. I bring you some cookies? Not needed. <laughs> nope, not necessary. I'm still going to charge you, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. So it just really helps with that confidence. And then I think too, with there's a specific case that's coming to mind and um it, it was a very challenging, very high needs case with the child and the family. Um, I think now I would have a lot more questions in the consultation mm-hmm. call. Um, there's some preliminary things that I ask um, about, you know, custody, about agreements, about parents' willingness to participate. That has um, been part of my informed consent now. Um, so I learned a lot of things that I think, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is acknowledging my tendency to want to help and save everyone mm-hmm. and, and that not necessarily being what's healthiest for them or myself. Yeah. And so having some more boundaries around that, I think is made the clients I have be a lot more clinically appropriate. That's awesome. Now I know for some people when they have closed down a practice, like it can be kind of interesting. Sometimes they can, even though they're like, well, I've done this before, I can do it again. But sometimes there's some like little gremlins that will run in, like some things (laughs) of like, well, what are people going to think? You just closed down or you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. How did you work through whatever gremlins were coming up regarding reopening? (sighs) Yeah, I, I think, I think there was some embarrassment. There was some guilt. I did feel like I, I I literally did abandon essentially some people. I I tried to hand them off the best I could, but even that, I was trusting someone else to do that. Um, I 
I did send out an email when I returned to the old clients that I had been with me at the time to acknowledge acknowledge the situation and let them know I was returning. And um, some of them never answered me, which I felt was fair. Um, some of them actually came back. Hmm. Um, so that was, I think that was really important that I, I felt it was important to reach out and say, hey, I acknowledge that this happened. I acknowledge that I may have been part of or cause of some distress for you. Um, I am back. And if you'd like to connect, let's do that. Um, So that was healing. And I got to have those open discussions with people and families um, that that healed a lot of that for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so that was really great. But some of the things that came up were, man, this isn't happening like it did before. It wasn't as, it's not as quick. And I, I, at the time was also not working anymore. I had decided to quit my full-time job Mm -hmm. uh, when I restarted last year. So um, there was definitely some doubt. It wasn't growing as quickly as it did Mm -hmm. originally. And there was a lot more it came from a more desperate and anxious place to make mm. money. Um, so there was definitely a lot more anxiety. Can I really do this? I know I did it before, but it feels very different. What are people going to say? <sighs> there was a lot. All the pieces of that. And I, I want to make clear too, like we all at some point in our career are going to be in a place where we have to hand off to other people. We have to trust someone else to take care of it, whether it's a car accident, whether it's a a loss, whether it is incapacitation or or some kind of other chronic illness or injury, at some point that's going to happen. It is not necessarily abandonment because we have to let someone else step in, right? So I just want to, for anyone that's listening, (laughs) right? Abandonment is they show up, no one's there and there's no, there's nothing there. There's nobody there. There's no one calling them. There's no email, there's no letter, you know, those different pieces of that. So, um, and I think even in those spaces, right, I can say that I've definitely made clinical missteps. (laughs) Like I've done terrible things clinically, very well-meaning. Let me be clear, (laughs) well-meaning, but like things I can look back and be like, oh my God, I can't (laughs) believe I said that to this person. And then they were like, what? And I repeated it. And I'm like, oh God, like right now, like I'm like, tearing up a little bit of like, oh my goodness. Right. Um, but I think that that is like, that's a normal part of the human experience. And so for us to kind of move through those emotions that come up or those pieces and, and use them to create, you know, what does that look like moving forward? Um, like I have a, 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 um, I guess that you probably have a a good professional will and you like know who you can trust, right. (laughs) To take care of things. If you have a loss, because you're like, I understand how that can happen. And you probably have better things in, in process um, than someone else who, who hasn't been through that. Right. Yeah. Um, When I went to go write that, I knew I didn't need the template. I just went right through everything (laughs) because I knew what was good about what happened and what wasn't great about what happened. And, and so it was, it, it was an opportunity for me to have a really great professional will written out. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, I, and again, I think sometimes when it comes to professional wills, 
we think that that's something that happens, you know, because I'm 60 or I'm 70 or because Mm -hmm. of, you know, fill in the blank, we wait until something kind of terrible happens. And so it's a lovely thing that you're starting out from that space. Right. So what advice would you have to other therapists, right? Who, you know, the thing that comes up for me in particular are therapists who've been through something heavy in their life, um, who are considering opening up private practice. Um, what would be your, your greatest advice to them? Um, I would suggest therapy first. (laughs) I just, even though I had a therapist as a kid and I've been through so many things, it took what happened with, with me and losing a child that it took that for me to go to therapy. And I wish I had started 10 years ago. I think Mm. I would have saved myself a lot of hurt. Um, but it really helped me identify the areas where I needed to make space for me that I needed to, I don't want to cry. (laughs) I, I needed to like find myself again. And so that's why doing this the second time around, I had to really make sure that I was getting something out of it and that I wasn't just doing it to, for others. And so I guess my advice would be to, to dream big and create something that brings you the things that you need. For me, that is flexibility. That is time to sit on the couch and watch TV on a Monday morning and then go pick up my son and and do sessions later in the day. Uh, Just that, that like, what's important to me, what brings me peace, what brings me joy. I got to really plan that out and plan my business around those things first, Mm -hmm. rather than trying to, to fit those things in later. Um, Cause I have found that didn't work for me. And, and the things that I needed were always last or did it, I didn't get to them. I think that is, is so incredibly wise. That place of if like, it doesn't just happen, happen by accident that we Mm -hmm. have balanced and healthy lives. What we learn in grad school, we learn in agency, like what got us to licensure is not going to get us to a happy life. Like we're all (laughs) overworked and underpaid and have terrible boundaries. And those are all rewarded. Like, because Mm -hmm. if you have good boundaries, if the likelihood of you getting through the licensure process, you'd just be like, this system is really broken. Like, I think I need a piece out, right? Like yeah. if you have really good boundaries, you're like, mm, this is, there's a lot about this is not quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost, I thought this is kind of a broad statement that I've never said before, but there's almost something about becoming licensed in this day and age where you're like, yeah, I did that. That means I have poor boundaries. I should really work on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think I've said this before too. I, I, even in my county agencies where, you know, people are just bleeding themselves dry for the job. And of course I, you know, I did a lot of overworking and had a lot of burnout, but I still would, I once said to a, a coworker, I, um, 
I am open in my schedule, but I'm not available at that time. And they looked at me like I was speaking another language. And I'm like, well, I need to take care of myself because if I'm not well, then I don't think my clients would be well either. And, and still just silence and staring at me because this idea, I think, especially in the social work world is, is people with really good intentions wanting to come and help and save all the babies and the, and, and unify the families. And it's all wonderful, but it's at the expense of us. And I think we're more able to, to give really good service and, and care to people when we feel centered and aligned and passionate and energetic, you know, we don't have to destroy ourselves for the sake of other people. Yes. I love everything about this. <laughs> Bailey for coming on and sharing your story today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Of course. Of course. For those of you who are listening, if you feel inspired by Haley's story, Um, If you want to hear more than like that, make sure you subscribe if you are not already in the place where you do podcasts. Um, We have lots of resources for you. You can go to zinnime.com forward slash free and you can check out our free resources um, and including our business school for therapists where we help you walk through every aspect of launching, growing, sustaining a successful solo or group practice. And we also have our new book, Therapist Burnout, Your Guide to Recovery and a Joyful, Sustainable Private Practice. If you've been burnt out in agencies and nonprofits, um, and now you're in private practice or thinking about private practice and thinking, is this really going to help? <laughs> or wait, I thought private practice was going to help and it's not. I'm still burnt out. What, what gives? Um, check out the book. Uh, I think you'll dig it. I think it'll, it'll help. So until next time, y'all remember that you are needed. You are um, truly unique and uh, your clients really want you to be out there and be taken care of um, so you can help and support them. I hope you loved today's episode. If you're a therapist who's tired of those long hours, low pay and constantly battling burnout, don't forget our free video training designed just for you on how to build and grow a sustainable, profitable solo or group practice head over to zinnime.com slash podcast to check it out today. Until next time.